I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. According to the Constitution, Donald Trump has another eight days in the White House. But after the January 6th invasion of the U.S. Capitol by his supporters at his instigation, there are calls to invoke other provisions of the Constitution to remove him from office now. Harvard constitutional law professor Lawrence Tribe believes Trump should be impeached again, and he walks us through all the reasons why it must be done, even if a Senate trial won't happen right away or a conviction unlikely. We also talk about removing Trump via the 25th Amendment, and Tribe explains why the push to use Section 3 of the 14th Amendment instead against Trump is an inadequate response to the violent insurrection he inspired. Oh, and we talked about his former student, Ted Cruz. Hear it all right now. Professor Tribe, welcome back to the podcast. It's been three years. Wow. It doesn't seem like three years. It seems like (laughs) three months. But, you know, time is very both compressed and expanded these days. I, I wonder if it'll feel different after January 20th. One can only hope and pray. But that is why we are here, because we need to have a discussion about what could possibly happen over the next nine days. Uh, And right now, the entire conversation happening in the country is about the insurrection by domestic terrorists on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And what form of accountability um, should President Trump um, have for inciting his followers and supporters to do that to the Capitol. And I want to walk through through each of the each of the proposed things. And let's start with the one that you and I both agree on, and that is impeachment. The president of the United States should be impeached a second time. Talk about why you feel it's important that that bit of accountability happen. Well, first of all, no president has ever in our history done anything as obviously subject to impeachment. This is the quintessential high crime and misdemeanor. The head of the executive branch fomenting violent insurrection and sedition against the legislative branch in an attack that was apparently quite orchestrated, but even if not, the president's involvement in it in a visible way was so obvious that for us not to make him the first president in our history to be impeached a second time would send a terrible signal to all future presidents, to kids growing up in this country, to the world, that this is somehow not a high crime and misdemeanor. So that if if the only effect of impeaching him was purely the historical marker that it laid down, if even if that was the only effect, it would be indispensable. But it isn't the only effect. There's a chance that it will put pressure on the Senate, and in particular on Mitch McConnell, uh, to stop dragging their feet and to move more expeditiously. After all, the trial of President Trump the first time for his other impeachable activity involving trying to extort uh, Ukraine in order to benefit himself in this very election, that whole trial just took three days. 
And when Mitch McConnell says, as though it were written in the stars, we can't come back until January 19th, one has to ask, why the hell not? I mean, it's a completely artificial proposition. So pressure on him to actually reconvene the Senate and have a trial, which shouldn't take long because this was one of those rare instances, both the initial attempt to pressure the Secretary of State of Georgia, Raffensperger, to undo the results of the election and the follow-on riot that the president fomented, attacking the Capitol and leaving people dead. All of those were in plain view of the American people and of the world. So it's not a very complicated trial. Um, and the result of that trial, even if it didn't end until two days before the end of this presidency by natural processes occurred, um, would still result in his conviction, removal, and disqualification assuming that was also voted from ever holding future office, not as a vindictive matter, but as a way of permanently killing this cancer, excising it from our national politics. Even if that doesn't happen, James Clyburn and others have suggested that the trial could occur after the Biden administration has had time to get up and running and has spent a hundred days actually with constructive measures and then even though he was no longer president, Trump could be convicted and permanently disqualified. There are some scholars who think that that is not a constitutional possibility, uh, but the evidence is pretty strong that that's one option open to the Congress. And if you think about it, the framers in designing the Constitution would hardly have wanted to design it so that a really dangerous president could resign the moment before it looked like the Senate was going to convict and disqualify him and thereby cut short the ability of the Senate to perform the constitutional function of excising a cancer from our politics. As it can't be that by the mere act of voluntarily ending his presidency a moment earlier that a president could prevent the Congress from doing its work. And what that implies is that even though it is impossible for the Senate to remove a, an officer like the president, because he's not removable anymore, he's removed himself, or time, the clock has run, even if it's impossible for it to remove him, it has the power to decide, probably by a mere majority vote, that he should be disqualified from ever again holding federal office. So. Those are among the reasons to go ahead. And the final reason I should just mention is that an impeachment would hang over his head like the sword of Damocles. He would know, having been impeached, that if he makes another terrible move, for example, if he chooses to pardon all of the people who were physically involved in the insurrection at the Capitol, giving them a pardon from any federal prosecution, if he were to do that, then maybe that would suddenly motivate his removal and disqualification. And so the deterrent also has a protective function. For all those reasons, his impeachment, I think, is mandatory, unless, of course, he just 
resigns or Pence responds, um, and I'm sure you will be asking me about the 25th Amendment, Pence responds to the 25th Amendment call that's going to be made upon him. Well, before we get to the 25th Amendment, and you are right, I am going to ask you about that. But I want you to define um, more specifically a word you use many times in your in your answer, and that is trial. When people hear trial, they understandably think trial in a court of law, where there are rules of evidence and things like that. But a trial in the Senate, and correct me if I'm wrong, is not judged by the same rules. Those those rules of evidence and things like that don't don't pertain right. to a Senate impeachment trial, a Senate trial, correct? Correct. It's a very different proceeding. It is a combination of a legal and a political proceeding. It's the the judges and jurors are the same, that is they are the senators. They all take a special oath to do justice. But unlike ordinary jurors, they're not expected to come in with a kind of blank slate. Everyone knows they are drawn from the political universe. They are allowed to talk with both sides outside of court, as it were, outside the proceedings in the Senate. The thing is presided over by the Chief Justice of the United States, who plays a more or less ceremonial role. And the rules are set by the Senate itself. There are standing rules for how these things are conducted, but they are rules that are very different from those in a courtroom. Hearsay is permitted. The standard of proof is not beyond a reasonable doubt, but probably something less like clear and convincing evidence. It's a very different creature. I mean, in the trial that President Trump had in early 2000, for his first impeachable offense. One of the things that the Senate decided, I think wrongly, was that they wouldn't even hear any evidence. Now, what kind of trial you have with no evidence? This time, they might not need to hear any extrinsic evidence. They were all firsthand witnesses to what happened. But that's simply an example of how different a Senate trial is from an ordinary trial in court. The final difference is that its objective is not to reach a verdict that punishes, that does justice in that sense. The objective is to protect the nation from someone who is seen as an intolerable danger if left in office. That is why the Constitution says that judgment in cases of conviction shall extend no further than to removal from office and if it is separately voted, disqualification from ever again holding a position of profit or honor under the United States. All preventive measures, not vindictive, not retributive. And that is also why the Constitution says that someone who has been convicted and removed by the Senate is still subject to indictment, trial, sentencing in a court of law. Otherwise, if the Senate trial was like an ordinary court trial, it would violate principles of double jeopardy to, for example, prosecute the same official for conduct that was involved in the impeachment. Take this example, uh, the example we have before us. If this president is impeached, convicted, removed, and disqualified, for having fomented and incited an insurrectionary violent riot 
targeting the United States Capitol, he could still be prosecuted for sedition after he leaves office and convicted and sentenced, perhaps to many years in prison, for his involvement in insurrection and sedition. There are various federal criminal provisions which don't have to be invoked in the impeachment trial, but that would be key in a decision to investigate and indict him after he is gone. Wow, there was a wow, there was a lot there. Um, um, can, I just need to, Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, the Washington Post got a hold of a memo that he was sending around basically saying, well, you know, if the House impeaches, we can't do anything until January 19th. Um, and for us to come back before that, we need agreement by all 100 senators to come back. Is that anywhere in the Constitution? Sure isn't in the Constitution, and it's not written in stars. Uh, it is in the Senate rules, but those rules are themselves not written in concrete. They are made up by the Senate itself. The Constitution says the Senate shall make its own rules, likewise the House, and the rules can be changed by majority vote. And even if it took a two-thirds, it's certainly not inconceivable, given the fact that one branch of government has tried to decapitate the other and could, with the stroke of a sword, a pen, or a nuclear button, do irreparable, incalculable damage to the universe, to the world. There's nothing that prevents the Senate from moving with something other than this ridiculous stately pace. So let me ask you this then, because what we have seen over the last um, the last five days is we have members of Congress, eight in the Senate, 138 in the uh, um, all together, those including the folks in the House, who even after the invasion of the U- U.S. Capitol voted in favor of the Electoral College objections. So why, I mean, I hear you when you say, you know, a majority vote in the Senate or maybe even two thirds could get you there to um, um, to do something, to bring the Senate back early. But we've got people who, I'll be charitable, maybe in in league with the president, might think that what the president is saying and doing is the right thing to do. What's possible? Yeah. But, but then if that's the case, then we need to put, you know, hold their feet to the fire, make them stand up and be counted. If those members of Congress who seditiously voted to continue the ridiculous challenge to the legitimacy of this election, even when it became clear that doing so was itself fomenting something of a riot. If those people decide to vote against his impeachment, then let them be held accountable, because I bet that as the history of this period is written more fully and as we see more completely how complicit the president was in planning, orchestrating, cheering on this mob, making sure that the National Guard would not be there to protect the Capitol, even a lot of those people under pressure from their constituents might decide, oops, you know, we, we better 
we better get straight with the Constitution. They might, they might not. And if they don't, they might get voted out of office in 2022. That's what I would hope. And likewise, on the Senate side, I mean, now that people like Hawley and Cruz uh, are under criticism from some of their own colleagues like Sass and are subjected to a petition being signed by already 5,000, eventually it'll be tens of thousands of, of lawyers saying they should be disbarred. Maybe they will realize that their gamble, that somehow they can become the new Trump uh, has not paid off. And that if they're to have any political future, and maybe they have already killed that prospect, but maybe they'll at least hope that they might have some political future and then, uh, and then straighten out. Um, I wouldn't count on it, but the fact is we should not rule out any possible way of cutting short the time in office of this absolutely delusional, monstrous character who cares about nothing but himself and who still, I have to repeat, has the nuclear codes at his command. He could do just irreparable harm. Mm -hmm. You know, there are only, I guess, what, nine days left as we record this podcast. By the time people listen, it'll be eight days, maybe a week. Um, some people think the universe was created in a week. I'm not among them, but I do think it, that civilization can be destroyed in a week. I think we shouldn't underestimate the amount of harm this guy can do. Oh, yeah. No, I don't underestimate it at all. And as, you know, someone who has watched him for for a very long time and knowing that he is a reality television personality who views every day as an episode in an ongoing reality television show, and given how we know reality TV operates, everything is leading up to that big moment for the season finale. I would not be... I am just, I wouldn't be surprised if the last three days of his administration is a fuselage of crazy. So much well, even crazier if he has been impeached, right? Right. That is if, if this guy, if nothing happens to him and there are three days left and signals are sent out through, you know, in the way flash mobs are created, it's time to storm the Capitol again. It's time to storm the inauguration. Um, his ability to do that as an unimpeached president, or at least as a president impeached only once, unimpeached for these latest events, is greater than his ability will be if he's sure, for sure, if he's removed. And even if he's not removed, if he's at least been impeached for the second time. So, you know, you can always calculate that things can backfire. You know, he could be seen as a martyr. Some people think leave him alone, uh, cutting him off of Twitter and everything has been dangerous because now he's isolated in the White House. He's been muzzled. He's even more dangerous, like a caged animal that's been defanged, more likely to, to do damage. That's not impossible. But I think the risks cut the other way, that on the whole, the more we do, to restrict and muzzle and confine and basically de-weaponize this character, the safer we are. So now let's talk about the other avenue that is still out there to remove President Trump from, uh, from office sooner rather than later, and that's the 25th Amendment. 
And that um, is a process that would have to be uh, led by the vice president, Vice President Mike Pence, who, depending on which news organization you listen to, one organization says that he has not ruled out invoking the 25th Amendment. Another news organization says that he has come to the determination is highly unlikely that he will use invoke the 25th Amendment. Why is, well, is the 25th Amendment even a viable option at this point, given who the cabinet is? I guess it's viable. I mean, whether it is plausible, how likely it is to be used is a different question. I don't think it's very likely, but he certainly has to be given a chance. If the vice president decided, being as close as he is to the nerve center of power, that the president is incapable of discharging the duties of his office, and I think anybody with half a mind sees that he's incapable of discharging the duties of his office. He's certainly capable of deploying the powers of his office, but that's not the same thing. He's not capable. If the vice president finally steps up to the plate and says, all right, that's true. He's not capable of discharging the duties of his office. Therefore, the standard for my invocation of Section 4 of the 25th Amendment, which would transfer power to the vice president instantly, has been met. I think he could corral a majority of the 15 members of the cabinet, many of whom are just acting, but who probably count for this purpose. I think he could corral them pretty quickly because any of them who decide to dissent from the vice president would realize what a huge weight they're taking onto their own shoulders. If he does that, power is immediately transferred to him. And although if this had happened months ago, that would have set in motion a complicated, uh, almost Rube Goldberg machine of bouncing back and forth with three-week periods during which Congress has to decide whether to reverse the determination. The president files a letter saying, yes, I am capable. None of that would would matter in this case with only nine days left. That is, all you do is run out the clock. President has no power whatsoever, no official power. The moment this happens, the moment a letter is sent, by Vice President Pence, signed by eight members of the heads, eight of the 15 heads of the of the department sent to the to uh, Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House um, and to Chuck Grassley as President pro tem of the Senate. That triggers it. And that's why Jamie Raskin and others were working late into the night. I can attest to that because I occasionally go back and forth with some of these guys late into the night on the wording of a 25th Amendment resolution that would direct Vice President Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment. And even though, as you say, Jonathan, the news organizations are all over the place about the precise state of mind of the vice president, what we know is that it's impossible for anyone to know for sure what even he or she themselves will do when confronted with this kind of resolution. So even if he is pretty close-minded on it, this could open his mind. He could he could decide, let's get it over with. And if he does, then we don't have to impeach. So then, okay, so with this resolution, if the resolution that Congressman Raskin and others are working on, if that does go to the vice president, he has to act on it one way or the other, either say, no, I'm not doing it, or to actually do it. Right. Well, he does. He can just 
say nothing, which or means ignore. no, I'm not doing it. I mean, there's there's no way to to pry out of him a specific answer. It's not like you must answer yes or no, or we'll put you in jail. But he clearly either he, he has to do it or not. And if he is going to do it, he better do it fast. No point in dragging his feet because Nancy Pelosi is going to say she's going to put it a clock on it. I think she'll say, do it within 24 hours or or we're going to go ahead with impeachment. Ah, okay. So you put out the resolution, you wait, formally put out the resolution, wait for his response, but give him a, t- a deadline. And then if the deadline isn't met, then you proceed uh, with the articles of impeachment. But as we know, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's not like the pocket veto that we were afraid the president might have exercised with respect to the COVID relief bill. This is a case where by just leaving the resolution in his pocket, he can't kill it because the resolution itself essentially says, if you don't do anything by a date certain, by a time certain, we're moving forward to impeach. So one of the uh, one of the things that Republicans are proposing as an alternative to impeachment, because, well, they're so oh so worried about dividing the nation and wanting national unity after what happened on January 6th, they're proposing um, using or invoking the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment uh, against President Trump. And that is the section that says that would bar him from ever holding elective office ever again. You don't like that idea. Why don't you like that idea? Well, it's not so much that I don't like it. It's that the Constitution that would not allow Congress merely by concurrent resolution, um, by concurrent resolution to name the people who were engaged in insurrection. You know, if, if the House and Senate both say, we hereby determine that Donald Trump and the following 50 people identified by the FBI uh, who stormed the Capitol are guilty of insurrection and rebellion against the United States. And therefore, we invoke Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which says that anyone who has taken an oath to uphold the Constitution, and that would truly include Donald Trump, even though he took it with his fingers crossed, anyone who has taken an oath to uphold the Constitution and thereafter is guilty of insurrection or rebellion can never hold any state or federal office. That's all very nice. But that would be what's called a bill of attainder, forbidden by Article One of the Constitution, which was not overridden by the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court, in fact, has, in, has held in a number of cases that you cannot disqualify people from various things based on their supposed participation in the Confederacy, which was a rebellion, um, through a bill of attainder. You have to have some fair process of deciding who wasn't an insurrectionist who was involved in the rebellion. So all they can do is repeat basically the language of section three of the 14th amendment. Those involved in the insurrection are hereby disqualified, but they can't determine through what would be a trial by legislature that Donald Trump is guilty of insurrection or rebellion. Now, if he is impeached, it seems to me, especially if that Senate trial is delayed in various ways. It it might be perfectly okay for Congress to add icing to the cake and say, on top of 
the fact that we've impeached him for inciting and fomenting a seditious insurrection. We also remind you about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and we use our enforcement power, which is in Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, uh, to set up a process for deciding who was or was not guilty of insurrection. They might do that. But the normal course of events would be that if the president or anybody else is tried and convicted after January 20th of sedition or any other federal crime that would effectively trigger the disqualification of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, then they would be disqualified. Now, the private citizens who might be guilty of the federal crime of sedition are not subject to the disqualification because they haven't taken an oath to uphold the Constitution. It's only members of Congress who might have been involved in orchestrating the sedition. Maybe, and I don't want to accuse them, but imagine the possibility that Hawley or Cruz coordinated the attack on the Capitol, helped to prevent the National Guard of Maryland from protecting the Capitol. Maybe they're guilty of insurrection. By a two-thirds vote of the Senate, they could be expelled. But on top of that, they if they were guilty of insurrection, they took an oath to uphold the Constitution. They would be subject to criminal prosecution. If they were convicted, then they would be subject to the permanent lifetime disqualification from holding any state or federal office under Section three of the 14th Amendment. So as you can see from what I'm laying out, it's not that I'm against it, it's that it doesn't solve the problem all by itself. It doesn't solve the problem, and the problem being the President of the United States is a danger to the nation and needs to be removed immediate, immediately. I do. May, let me add one thing. Sure. Although I'm not against it, I don't like the idea of having too many off-ramps. That is, the more you float all these possibilities, like, oh, a concurrent resolution condemning the president and invoking the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, even though that wouldn't actually do anything to protect us from him, the more excuses it gives to people who are on the edge and are a little nervous about voting to impeach. It gives them an out. And I don't want people to have too easy an out. I I think people, people should have to stand up on this one. Yeah, no, folks need folks need to to stand up and raise their hands and show their faces if they cast a vote that would keep him in office. And that would basically be a, approval of what happened on on January 6th. Ted Cruz, and correct me if I'm wrong, was a student of yours. That's correct. No, I'm not exactly lost. proud of it, but it's correct. Are you surprised that your former student finds himself in this situation that he's in now? No. I mean, he's made it clear over the years that he's a man of no principle, that he's an opportunist, that he can say with feigned outrage, anybody who insults my wife and calls her ugly the way Trump did or says my father was involved in killing JFK, it's got a, you know, got me to deal with. That kind of person doesn't belong in government. And then he becomes a toady uh, supporting the president. So I'm not surprised. Of course, when he first entered national politics, I sort of hoped 
that like some of my other students, Barack Obama, John Roberts, Adam Schiff, Elena Kagan, uh, Merrick Garland, that he would have an honorable career and would do things in the national interest rather than in the Cruzian interest, simply in his own interest. I, I had that hope for a while, but it didn't take long before that was dashed. But I have to say, just like I cannot take credit for John Roberts, Barack Obama, Elena Kagan, I can't take credit for them. They're great people. I was lucky enough to be their teacher. I learned from them as well as teaching them. So I don't think I should take blame for Ted Cruz. I mean, we, we too easily overestimate our influence as teachers. Maybe if I were his kindergarten teacher or if I were his third or fourth grade teacher, I mean, I think those are the character forming people who deserve some credit for the great careers of Barack Obama and and Merrick Garland and Elena Kagan on the one hand, and for the terrible career of, of Ted Cruz on the other. But being a mere law professor, I, I think I'm more a bystander. A mere, a mere law professor. But I had to ask that question, not as a way of, of assigning blame, but as a way of just getting the answer you just gave me. It was like, wow, this this person was in my classroom and I taught them. And now look at, look at the way they turned out. Professor Tribe, um, I want to end... Um, with this question. Um, I don't know if I had a chance to ask you this question when you were on my MSNBC show on Sunday. And that is this. Just give your your response to Republicans who, in their arguments against going for a second impeachment of President Trump, are making, are saying that it shouldn't be done because it would divide the nation further and that we should be focused on unity instead of instead of doing something they say is so divisive. Your response to that argument? Well, I think that argument sort of proves too much. You know, it, it would be like saying that the president actually walked over to the Capitol and, and shot half the members of Congress and, and took hostages personally. Uh, we should look the other way because it would be divisive to do anything about it. There comes a point in which you've got to act on principle, even if there are a lot of people who will be upset. There's no perfect answer right now. Whatever we do or don't do, we're deeply divided. A decision not to go after this this fellow for all he has done would itself be divisive. There are 80 million people who voted that he should not be president any, anymore. And now he's trying to attack the Capitol to prevent that outcome from being implemented. It's not exactly healing to tell those 80 million people your votes don't count. Uh, and I don't want to tell the 74 million who voted for Trump their votes don't count. They do. But elections, as people are fond of saying on both sides, have consequences. One of the consequences is that you don't let people attack the government in order to upset the results of an election and go at the very heart of democracy. So I think we have to move ahead and let the chips fall where they may. We can't start calculating how best to minimize the degree of emotional distress that people will feel if we do or don't do something. Professor Lawrence Tribe, constitutional law professor at Harvard University, who has taught a lot of great Americans. Thank you very, very much for coming back to the podcast and for teaching us in this episode uh, what could potentially lie ahead over the next few days. Thank you, Jonathan. I really enjoyed the conversation. 
Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.